I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Guys, I can't remember the last time I've been to the symphony. And I just remember growing up going to the symphony and being able to see these grand staircases and all of the decorations. And it's so like contemporary and classic at the same time. And it's been phenomenal to be able to go back recently and watch our next interviewee perform live. It's amazing. Right? So amazing. Art Deco does that, by the way, Jay. Art the art, yeah, it's the style of Art Deco, which I feel like is classic and modern, and it's one of my favorites, <laughs> And which is why I love going to the symphony so much and being able to attend a performance there so close to this interview, getting to see the Danny Elfman performance. And if you all don't know Danny Elfman, let's talk about The Simpsons and The Nightmare Before Christmas and pretty much any amazing film score that's like kind of poppy and funky. He was in Oingo Boingo. Anyway, so his cello concerto, this was the world premiere and Barbara, who we're about to interview, performed it. And that was such a nice perk for all of us to go there and see her. Susan, what did you think of that performance? Oh, my God. First of all, I love walking into Davies Symphony Hall for the same reason that you mentioned, Michaela and Jay. It's stunningly beautiful. And I've been there a number of times, but it was such a treat. And to see Barbara playing was just outstanding. And the Danny Elfman piece, along with the other two composers, Stradrick, Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name. Stravinsky. Yes, Stravinsky. It was Stravinsky. Yeah, it yeah. was a cool combination because Stravinsky was also very modern and all of his sound was very different, which is just like Danny. He kind of, he pushes the envelope, right? Which was what made this performance really cool. It was really special. And because I'm a filmmaker, Danny Elfman is one of my heroes. So to listen to that beautiful score and to see the cello being played, not only by Barbara, but by the musician who was there from France. Absolutely amazing. Quite a performance. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Barbara. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. So after the devastating earthquake and fire of 1906 here in San Francisco, the civic leaders wanted to create a permanent orchestra for our music-loving city. So in December of 1911, San Francisco Symphony gave its first concert restarting the city's cultural life. And since then, the San Francisco Symphony has become one of the best, telling you, best symphonies in the world. Some of the most famous conductors have been guest conductors. Some of the most well-known musicians have played or sang with the symphony. Our San Francisco Symphony really has some of the most interesting programs 
new works by young composers, partnering with non-classical musicians like Metallica, and showcasing world premieres of Danny Elfman. The San Francisco Symphony is one of a kind, and so is our interview with Barbara Bogatin. So tell us your full name and also what you do. So Barbara Bogatin, and I'm a cellist, and I've been a member of the San Francisco Symphony since 1994. Wow. That's actually fairly typical when you win an audition for a major symphony orchestra, one as great as the San Francisco Symphony. Most people stay there their entire careers. That's not unusual. Okay. Yeah. Where were you born and raised? Actually, I was born in Santa Rosa, but when I was about four, my family moved to Philadelphia, where both of my parents had been from, and that's where I started the cello in public school in Philadelphia. My school happened to have a really good music program and a orchestra at the school and free lessons and free instruments, and so I was very happy to start when I was in third grade. Did you have a musical proclivity or talent that your parents recognized? Were they musicians as well, or you just happened to pick it up? Uh, My parents were not musicians, although my father was a kind of amateur pianist. He played just for fun. But my parents loved classical music, and when they saw that they offered free lessons and free instruments, they had myself and my two siblings take an instrument just so we would know something about music, and they couldn't ever have afforded to give me lessons or buy an instrument if it hadn't been free at the public school. So I was thrilled. And then in third grade, I had heard a string quartet play at the school. So when they said, what instrument do you want to play? I said, well, the violin or the cello, one of those from the string quartet. And it just so happened, they said, well, we've already given out the violin, so you'll get the cello. (laughs) So I said, okay, I'll take the cello. And you've been playing the cello ever since? I have, since age eight. Wow. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that I, at the beginning, had a special talent, but I did discover two things that were very important. The first was if I practiced a little every day, I got much better. (laughs) And so that was very encouraging. And then when I would play for people, everyone would tell me how good I played and how talented I was. And I loved the praise for something that I was doing on my own. So between the practicing and the praise, that kind of kept me going for quite a long time. And did you fall in love with the instrument? Oh, totally. I loved it right from the beginning. And I loved especially playing with the other kids. My school had an orchestra, and we had a little string quartet when I was 11. And I loved playing with ensembles and playing under a conductor. When I was 12, my family moved to the Bay Area. We lived in Daly City. And I started studying privately at the San Francisco Conservatory in the preparatory division, pre-college. So I did that through high school. When it came time for college, in those days, this was a long time ago, you pretty much had to go to the East Coast to a major conservatory like Juilliard or Curtis to get a top-notch music education. That's changed hugely now. The San Francisco Conservatory is an excellent conservatory for college. And had it been the case, for instance, now if I were coming up, I would never have gone to the East Coast. I would have stayed here. But at that time, the best teachers were there on the East Coast and the best education and the best opportunities. So I auditioned for Juilliard and I wound up getting a scholarship. Oh, marvelous. My goodness. That's where I studied for my bachelor's and master's degree. I left when I was 17 to go to New York and study at Juilliard. And whereas I had been the big star here (laughs) and everybody was telling me how talented I was whenever I'd perform. I played in the California Youth Symphony. I did a concerto with the orchestra when I was in high school. Mm. And then I went to Juilliard and suddenly I was competing against the best players in the world. And 
just to give you an example, there was a young kid who took cello lessons right at the same time as my lesson was in the studio next door. And he would practice standing up in the hallway. And I thought, God, how come that kid sounds so good standing up? And he turned out to be Yo-Yo Ma. (gasps) Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. So I knew him when when he was running around the corridors of Juilliard. Oh, my God. um, Practicing standing up. And we had people at that level on all instruments. And so it was a big change for me. And to even wonder if I would ever have a career in music with all of these fantastic players. Wow. So how did you deal with that competition? Uh, not well. <laughs> it was very hard. I would say my first three years at Juilliard were really tough. Uh, it was a lot of stress to try to practice and get as good as I could get. And I never felt like I had enough time to practice. And I had a very tough teacher. My teacher believed in tough love without the love part. So <laughs> it was a lot of criticism and not a lot of encouragement for a while. So it was, it was hard. It was very hard. So how did that not break your spirit? Oh, great question. You know, I think that I had enough wonderful friends that I would play with at string quartets and chamber music coaching and other ensembles that I was lucky enough to be a part of where I did get encouragement and I did have people that I really liked playing with and appreciated what I had to offer. And it took some time, little by little. I would say by my fourth, fifth years at Juilliard, I was starting to feel like I could find my own place in music. How did that path lead back to San Francisco? When I finished Juilliard, I had started doing some freelancing in New York, which as just a pretty natural result of playing with colleagues and having a quartet that would play weddings and church jobs and concerts in the schools all around the five boroughs. And I started to do some subbing on Broadway shows, and I played on cruise ships with the quartet, and Lots of little concerts, little small orchestras that would hire a freelance group and freelance group to play in a church for different things. And so little by little, I was sort of working my way up the food chain of freelance work. And eventually, I was subbing with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. I was playing with American Ballet Theater and eventually got well known enough to be subbing with the New York Philharmonic. And I was, you know, thinking throughout this time, I really liked freelancing. There was so much variety, but there was also a lot of traveling, a lot of touring, and you didn't have any control over your schedule. And I couldn't imagine as I was getting into my 30s that for the whole rest of my life, I would be you know, dropping everything at the last minute to go on tour with some opera company or going off on a cruise and then coming back and not knowing what was coming up next. So I thought that it would be really great to play in a major symphony orchestra as a full-time occupation, high, wonderful quality music making, great conductors, great repertoire, and a more balanced lifestyle. Some financial stability. Some financial stability, (laughs) yes. So I started the very arduous process of taking orchestra auditions, actually all around the country. And it's a very difficult, brutally competitive process. I mean, it was, this was over 30 years ago when I was taking my auditions. And It's even harder now because there are many more great players. But at the time, it was a tough process. I don't know if you're aware of the process for joining an orchestra. Pretty much universally now throughout the country, the auditions are behind screens, Mm -hmm. literally, so you don't know who's coming. So when I first started, it was the dark old days when there were no screens and people could see who you were. And it was much harder for women to get in orchestras. And I, I... 
had even members of symphony orchestras tell me, oh, I don't think women should be in the orchestra. It's, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not good for us. It was a barrier for women and for people of color Absolutely. until they started with yeah. the screen. Yeah. And then everyone had a fair shot. Yeah. And so, so you persevered beyond that because you're saying in the day they could see you. The first couple of years, yeah. But in the 80s, pretty much they started universally using screens for at least the first round, sometimes the second round here. In the San Francisco Symphony, we have screens for prelims, semifinals, and finals as well. And the screen forces them just to listen to the music yes. and the quality yes. of the playing and yeah. not what the person looks like. Yeah. We do our best to eliminate as much bias as we possibly yeah. can at this point. So the auditions were arduous. They were. So I auditioned probably about 50 auditions all around the country, many different orchestras. Sometimes I'd make the finals. Sometimes I'd make the semifinals. Sometimes I would get a temporary job. I was acting principal in the Milwaukee Symphony for a couple of years. And I did win a position as principal cellist of the New Jersey Symphony, where I stayed for about eight years when I was still living in New York. But that was not a full-time job, so I was still freelancing while I did that. But I kept up taking auditions, and eventually I won my position here in the San Francisco Symphony. And so I'm just thrilled to be here still. I love the job, and every day I appreciate being here and playing with this really great orchestra. That's so wonderful. And so that was many years ago, so this has been your home and your career for a long time. Yeah, I've been with this orchestra since 1994. Have your other colleagues been with the orchestra for that long as Uh, well? Well, there are some who've been even longer than I have. We've had, in fact, just quite recently, three retirees in the cello section, in my section, each of whom was there for 40 or more years. Yeah. So we we have some openings now. Every year there are different openings in different sections so it's a kind of a big rotating system where people stay for a long time but they arrive at different times so right. some t- right now because of during the pandemic of course we didn't hold auditions for 2 years and additionally many people chose that time to retire so we have quite a few openings now in pretty much all sections of the orchestra and we're doing our best to fill them as quickly as we can how many people are in the cello section? We have 11 members. Okay. Yeah, 11 That's members. It. And how many people are on stage at once? Uh, well, in the whole orchestra, we have 104 members of the orchestra, but not all 104 play every piece. Like, for instance, this week, with we have our wonderful music director, laureate Michael Tilson-Thomas, conducting. And the first piece is a symphony for winds by Stravinsky, so only winds. Then the last piece on the program is Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings. So that's only strings. Mm. And then in between, we're doing a new piece by the wonderful film composer, Danny Elfman, a cello concerto. Oh, one of my favorite composers. Yes. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. I, I could jump up and down. That's yeah. incredible. You must come this week. Oh, wow. Okay. This week. Yeah. What day? Well, we're t- the first concert is Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. We're doing it three times. Oh, goodness. Oh, Tim is like a super fan of Danny. Come. So we're doing a cello concerto that he wrote. Oh, wow. Uh, and the wonderful soloist is named Gautier Capuçon. And I can't tell you what the piece is like because we have not rehearsed it yet. Oh, Tomorrow, wow. oh Tomorrow's our first rehearsal. <laughs> oh, God. It's wow. a new piece, so it's, oh. it's not even been recorded. So I'm very excited to hear it for the first time. No, that's very exciting. Oh, that is exciting. Gosh, so, come. so how long does it take you to learn a new piece, a, a veteran like you who's been doing it forever? Well, we, we practice our parts individually mm-hmm. before the first rehearsal. 
So everybody comes prepared, however long it takes. It might take you an hour, it might take five hours. So you practice your part. And then generally for each orchestra concert, the orchestra together will have four rehearsals. And that's enough to put together a program. And then we'll repeat it three or four times that so week. Four rehearsals, that doesn't seem like a lot. Amazingly, it's generally enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and co- conductors are very skilled mm. at managing their rehearsal time so that they tell you just exactly what you need to know to put the piece together. Okay. I've had some conductors say to me, you know, when a conductor looks at a score, there's a hundred things he could say about every page. And a really great conductor knows exactly which things to pick, to say, to make the ensemble fit together and to have everybody on the same page musically and ensemble And then so, the symphony yeah. also has a symphony chorus as well, right? Yes. Yeah, because I have a dear friend who used to sing with the symphony chorus. Yeah. We play sometimes pieces with chorus, not all the time, okay. but for instance, we have Beethoven's Ninth coming up in a couple of weeks, so that has a big chorus part. Lovely. Come to that one. <laughs> so speaking of conductors, for much of your career, it was MTT. Yes. So now you have a new conductor. And yes. Can you talk a little bit about the differences? Interestingly, every conductor is different, mm-hmm. and it's hard to say if one is this way and one is that way. Each conductor brings his or her individuality, musicality, sense of aesthetic, energy, special composers that they feel a particular affinity for. And you know, Michael Tilson Thomas is a wonderful, expressive, and deeply felt musician, and he brings that to all of his rehearsals. And our new conductor, Esapekka Salonen, also a brilliant musician and very expressive with his hands. And what he brings, his particular energy and intensity, is also quite wonderful. And I think the orchestra sounds great under both of those conductors. Mm-hmm. But we actually have maybe 20 guest conductors in a year. So people think, oh, you're always playing with the same one, but not so. Sometimes we switch week to week. We had a wonderful Czech conductor last week, Uri Valchua, and he brought his particular musicality and sensibility to the orchestra, and we just adapted instantly and tried to be as expressive as he was asking in his particular way. And how does that happen? Are you all like going out for drinks and getting to know each other beforehand, (laughs) or are you just showing up and being... Like, okay, cool. Here's our new boss. We're just going to go. It's more like that. Is it? Okay. And and you get very used to that. So whoever the conductor is, they have a certain discipline. They have things that they want to say. They have things they want to communicate. They have a way of communicating with their hands and their body language. And we're trained in following them, both visually and through what they say and what they ask for. So it's a very special relationship musician and conductor. And with the best conductors, magic is just created on stage. Mm -hmm. So you bring your skill set, they have theirs, there's uh, respect and admiration, I would say, on both sides. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. That makes the magic happen. It makes the magic. And I've been so fortunate in my career to have worked with some of the world's greatest conductors. And for me, one of the highlights was working with Leonard Bernstein when I was in New York. Oh, goodness. Yeah, to play under what? his baton and just his whole incredible musical being mm. that he brings to every note. And that really was magic. Could you feel his electricity? Totally, totally. I mean, he is just yeah. a, a 
charismatic. Yeah. 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 I'll never forget the very first time I worked with him. It was a special event at Carnegie Hall, and it was a combination of musicians from many different orchestras all around New York, from the Met, from New York Philharmonic. I was there from the New Jersey Symphony, freelance groups. It was a huge orchestra. You could barely fit on the stage, and it was a benefit for AIDS research. It was in the late 80s when the AIDS crisis was so devastating to the whole arts community and the musical community of New York. And this was the first time that classical music had come together to do a benefit. It was called Music for Life. Mm. And the first piece actually in the program that Lenny was conducting was the Charles Ives Unanswered Question. And it starts with this very, very quiet string sustained notes. And at the rehearsal... Lenny was trying to get this particular sound from the strings, and we tried. He goes, no, 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 it's too, it's too present. It has to be not earthly. It has to be from another planet. And so we try again. <laughs> no, 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 it's too present. You have to, you're the angels. You're up in the sky. You're, it has to be from another world. We try it again. No, no, no. He was, just wasn't happy. And eventually the personnel manager said, you have to move on. This is, we can't spend all day. We have a long list of pieces. And so he... He went on, and he still wasn't happy with that sound, and that ethereal sound. He wasn't getting it. And so this was the dress rehearsal. He already was very frustrated with the string section. And so comes the concert, and I was quite nervous. I was thinking, what's he going to do this time? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> we never quite got it right, and it was just long, sustained, quiet notes. And so he walks out on stage to Carnegie Hall, and... He stands up on the podium. I'm going to get emotional describing this, I know. So he walks out and he stands and he just puts down his baton and he looks at the orchestra like this, just looked into everybody's eyes. And, you know, I was sitting there, I think he just felt like he was looking right into my soul and he was just looking like this for a long time. And I thought, what is the audience thinking? He's going to have a stroke there. He's just standing silently. And so eventually he raised his arms and one little finger was the downbeat. Wow. And the sound that he got from the strings, I will never forget that. It still gives me chills to imagine. It was like from another planet. It was just Mm. the quietest, most delicate, most magical sound. He got that otherworldly sound. Yeah. You know, and he just became that sound and the emotion that everybody was feeling on the stage, all of us having lost friends yes. to that terrible disease. And, yes. Uh, just he tapped into this incredible emotion we were all feeling at that moment and he just became this magical sound. And I'll never forget that moment. I thought, okay, that this is the magic of this genius. Yes. He connected so. you all together. Yeah. Are you writing about that? A book about Everything. I actually, (laughs) uh, for the Bernstein Centennial, which was 2018, I did write about this particular story. There was a page on the Leonard Bernstein website where musicians from all over the world put anecdotes or stories or memories about working with him or knowing him or hearing him. And I wrote that story there. It's brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Oh, my gosh. Because you really told that story so well. Made me feel like I had been there. I think I would have been so intimidated by him. I think everybody was. Every musician was. Everybody who worked with him just treated him with such tremendous respect. Another thing I'll never forget at these Carnegie Hall rehearsals, Lenny was sitting in the audience and one of the pieces, actually it was, this is an absolutely great story about Lenny. So 
James Levine and Lenny were the two conductors. They were alternating conducting at this concert, and we were doing the overture to Candide, which, of course, Lenny yes. wrote. Mm-hmm. But Levine was conducting it. So we're sitting on stage, we're working with Levine, he's conducting it, and Lenny is sitting in Carnegie Hall in the audience smoking a cigarette. Which, <laughs> you know, you, the fire marshal was there. No one said a word. <laughs> like, the man can do whatever he wants. <laughs> the only person in the history of Carnegie Hall. So, so New York. So he's smoking, smoking. Yeah. <laughs> And as we're playing the overture to Candide, he stands up and he gets a little closer to the stage. And he can't quite help himself, so he's sort of going like this, and Levine's conducting. And so then he puts the cigarette in his mouth, hops up on the stage, and starts walking around the orchestra when somebody has the melody, giving them like this, or the making motions and Levine's conducting and he's just getting beat red in the face and Lenny's walking throughout the whole orchestra giving all these little signs to people little creative things to do bring this out and Levine is just sitting there more and more red faced he's encroaching on someone else's territory and this is rehearsal this isn't a performance no no not the performance so just just a rehearsal and of course you know this is his music and of course he's trying to show it but that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing right and so then at the performance of course Levine conducted it and then when it was over he brings Lenny out just like by the arm like this to come out on stage with him. And he goes to the, he wrote that, he wrote that. (laughs) And he gave him a big bear hug. So whatever Uh, there was going on, he certainly forgave him at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Oh my friends. Oh, that's so So amazing. As we were walking along that hallway downstairs, you were pointing out all the, some of the different people that you've worked with in terms of either singing or doing narrations. Can you share some of that? Well, that's the hall of famers of different wonderful musicians that we've worked with over time. And that's one of the really great things about playing in the San Francisco Symphony. We have so many terrific guest artists who come of all different genres. And I was pointing out a couple of sort of non-classical but wonderful artists that we've worked with, like Johnny Mathis, who's played many Mm -hmm. times in our pop series. We did a concert a couple years ago with Common, who just did a fabulous show with the orchestra and was... The audience went completely nuts Where over that. Where was I? Yeah, I, I know. Where I was I, too? I missed one. that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> my, my both kids came there in their 20s, and they were just over the moon, and they got to take his picture, and it was a really, it was a thrilling night. We've played with Metallica several times. We did a concert with them for the first time in 2000, and it was, at pretty sure it was at the Fox Theater in Oakland. We did several performances of all their music, which was arranged for their band and orchestra. Hmm. And what um, a combination! Seriously, they, they made an album. They, I was going to say the S and M Symphony and Metallica. And in fact, so that and, yeah. that one, <laughs> they filmed it as well. Yeah. We won Best Rock Video of 2000. Wow! So no I got way. a lot of credibility, and my my kids you got some street cred. That's yes. so cool. rock video. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. you're the coolest, Barbara. <laughs> for a few moments, I was a cool mom. But, um, <laughs> so for that concert, did you have to wear the black dress like you do here? We did wear black. We were kind of in a sort of a pit. We were lower than the rest of them. They were a little bit higher up. But I recall at that concert that, you know, I had never really been to a concert like this before, heavy mm. metal. <laughs> so I wasn't quite prepared for the audience reaction. I mean, screaming and yelling and jumping through the aisles. Was and there a mosh pit? There was a mosh pit. <laughs> yeah. And another thing I remember, it was so hot. 
Oh, yeah. And I remember talking to one of the stage crew, couldn't you turn up the air conditioning? And he said, oh, no, they want to sweat together, the whole audience and the band. That's part of our bonding, you know, so they kept oh. it like steaming oh, hot. Sweaty, yeah. gross. Were you wearing leather pants? Uh, Black what, leather pants? No, no leather. No? no leather pants. <laughs> Darn. Anyway. And the orchestra played with Metallica uh, a couple of years ago at the opening of the Chase Center as well. That's so fun. Yeah, they're definitely Bay Area people. <laughs> they're Bay Area guys. Can you talk about, this is sort of off topic, but I'm interested in the whole dress code. Coming from the television world where you had to dress a certain way, but not a certain color, but just kind of a more rigid dress code, although it's loosened a lot now. But orchestras around the world don't they still have the black dress? Well, we have dress codes. Our symphony dress code has actually been changing. And since the pandemic and coming back, it's gotten much less formal. The women's clothes have remained largely the same. It's black and it can be a skirt or formal pants with a matching black jacket or formal blouse, long sleeved. It has to be fairly conservative, no designs on it. It's pretty much all black. And the men used to wear tails white tie and tails that's what i remember Mm. i remember bow ties and yeah but we have changed that now and somehow when we came back after the pandemic it just didn't quite feel right to be so formal and we were just so grateful to be playing for people again and have audiences come back we actually did a lot of video presentations online during lockdown and we were very informally dressed for those and so we kind of maintained the less formal dress code and now The men wear black pants, black jacket, and a black button-down shirt. And women still wear all black, but there's less of a formality about it. It doesn't have to be like a velvet skirt. Women can wear much more casual black slacks. But they don't want individuals to stand out in performance generally because we are a homogenous ensemble, and the goal is to play as one unit. So in a way, the dress code makes it less distracting, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... You know, we're pretty much fine with it. And I think audiences do appreciate the less formality that we have now. And the men don't have to wear ties? At the moment, no. Hmm. no. That's surprising. That is surprising. I think that's kind of a bummer, actually. <laughs> because one of, my, well, one of my favorite things to do is to get real dressed up and come to the symphony and wear like a gown and be here and I think that some people do that you know when we do a special gala for instance yeah women definitely dress to the nines with these gorgeous gowns but for most concerts there's quite a range we have people who come in jeans we have people who come in beautiful nice dresses and men who wear suits and others who wear flannel shirts and so I I'm fine with that I think people should be comfortable true at a concert and I like the less formal elements to it and I I want us to not be off-putting because people think it has to be too formal or we have to dress Mm -hmm. up or be a certain way yeah I I want us to think however you can get them in the door yeah I have come to the galas and Uh definitely like you said with the gowns and the jewels and all that and that's really there is a place for that. yeah that's fun every now and then too for sure but every time. Yeah. It's true. That's true. And I have come to do the film. Oh, the films the films, are fun. The film screenings. Yeah. yeah which are, oh, yeah. I love that. Watching the movie. The and the screening is fantastic. Yeah. I've I seen was all trying the... to get into one. What was the last one you did? And it was sold out. See, they're always sold it, it out was, now. I know. We, we actually have favorite. some interesting ones coming up Thanksgiving weekend. We're doing The Godfather, the oh, first Godfather. yes. Which is a great score. Nino so Rota. It's a fantastic score. And, uh, oh, that's amazing. That is such a fun film to play because you know, the music is such an integral part, as it mm-hmm. often is. 
in a film. In fact, as it always is in a film. We, oh, we yeah. also were doing Fantasia. Oh, Ooh, that's also Thanksgiving favorites. week for, for, you know, families and for kids too. Yeah. And it's such a great show. And the, of course, the music is really wonderful in that, the classical music. Yeah. I don't know about Fantasia as a family film, but back in college days, you'd do a little something, something and go watch Fantasia. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's exactly what, what I was just thinking about, Carolyn. different view of it. <laughs> I'm glad you went there because I was totally thinking of that. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Whatever you want to do before the concert is your business. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Barbara, I also read that you are doing something very interesting with your music and preparation for being a musician and bringing meditation. And I'm a huge advocate of meditation and mind wellness and all of that. Can you talk about how that came about and what you're doing with that? So I was talking a little bit about my freelance lifestyle and how stressful that was. And I always felt like I was like trying to rush to get to the next thing and never had enough time for anything. And I never knew anything about meditation or had any relationship to it. I don't know if you remember back in the day at airports, they used to have the Hare Krishna people. This was in the days before airport security. Okay. There'd be these Hare Krishna devotees dressed in orange mm-hmm. at the airports for some reason, trying to get everybody to come and join them. And that's what I was thinking. That's meditation. I didn't want to get anywhere near that. And so I had no understanding of what was behind it. And as it happened, I was dating a guy in New York who was a neuroscientist. And as part of his wanting to understand the mind and consciousness and how the brain works, he had in his life done some meditation retreats, a particular Buddhist type of meditation called Vipassana, which is translated often as insight meditation. And he was telling me about these retreats that he had done and how great they were, and I should really do one with him. And so I said, well, what would we do on this retreat? Now, I'm picturing the Hare Krishna guys with their tambourines <laughs> and their orange robes. Chanting. Yeah. And he said, well, no, no, it's nothing like that. So we will go to this Buddhist monastery. We'll spend 10 days there. And for about 8 to 10 hours a day, we'll sit on this little cushion on the floor, just in silence. And then every now and then you get up and you walk very, very slowly back and forth across the room. And then you sit down again for another couple hours just in silence on the cushion. And then you'll get three meals a day while you're there and everything will be in silence. You won't speak to anyone. No one will speak to you for the 10 days. And then every night after dinner, the teachers will talk about the Buddhist teachings. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> what did you say? I said, you have got to be kidding. <laughs> Ten days? There is no way I'm going to do this. Wow. It doesn't sound like it would be fun. It sounds very difficult and boring. And he's a very persuasive guy. <laughs> and spoiler alert, I did wind up marrying him now. We've married for 34 years. That's how persuasive he is. Very persuasive. Um, and he kind of wore me down little by little over the years. So eventually I agreed to go on this retreat with him. And I also I began to trust him. And I thought, well, if he thinks it's such a valuable thing, okay, I'll give it a try. So I went with him one year to this meditation retreat in Barrie, Massachusetts, at this Insight Meditation Society Center. And... It was difficult and sometimes boring, but I discovered a couple of really surprising things. After a few days, the teachers, there were three teachers, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg, 
At the time, I never had heard of them. They're actually pretty well known in the meditation field these days. Completely well known, yeah. like yeah. super famous. Yeah, so Jack Cornfield <laughs> is one of That's the founders. Like saying the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. The Beatles of meditation. John Lennon, who'd heard of him? Yeah, right. right. Harry Krishna yeah. and John Lennon. Those kind of go together. We say Jack Cornfield. almost fell off my chair. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh. Okay, go ahead. So he was one of the founders <laughs> of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center now in West Marin. But at yeah. the time, he wasn't that well known. And I did this retreat, and I discovered that the things that they were talking about sounded vaguely familiar to me. They were talking about listening deeply to the sounds that you hear and being aware of the internal sensations of your body. Do you have unnecessary tension when you walk? How are you using your musculature? Hmm. And it's kind of a non-judgmental but discerning awareness of whatever is present. And I thought, you know, that sounds a lot like what I do when I practice the cello. Mm. Aware of my internal sensations, aware of tension and relaxation, following my breath, non-judgmental awareness of whatever's going on, listening deeply. And over the course of those 10 days, I started to think more and more about ways that this reminded me of music practice, meditation practice. And it's certainly something that I've was already thinking about without knowing it. I was thinking about what's the best way to practice? How can I use my time well? And through meditation, so after that retreat, I wound up doing many more retreats as it happens and established my own daily practice. And I realized if I can slow down my thought processes, I can really break down practice exactly what is the process of awareness, listening, analyzing, making changes, repeating with awareness, rehabituating yourself. So it really helped me get closer to my own process of learning on the cello and of improving. And one of the meditation teachers said this great phrase, which really stayed with me, each moment of conscious awareness erases a moment of conditioned response, Mm. which means if you unpack that, every moment that you are aware of what you're doing you're rehabituating yourself so that you don't have the conditioned response. In meditation, for instance, when we work with calming ourselves and getting in touch with our breath, slowing down our breathing, paying attention to what's going on in the body, it creates a kind of spaciousness, at least for me. And so I'm less reactive. And so if somebody, let's say, makes a political comment that really jars me, my inclination would be, what do you mean? I don't, how can you think that? But that would be my habitual response. But if I have more conscious awareness, I can be aware of, oh, my heart is starting to beat faster. Perhaps I can calm myself with a couple of calming breaths. And then I can rehabituate my knee-jerk response to something more like a conditioned response that would be a question or maybe, could you speak more about that? I might say instead of... Or maybe not. Yeah, or maybe not. <laughs> or turn around and walk the other direction. Or, make, or have a kind of reaction that I have a little bit more control over instead of being so reactive. So I'm changing my conditioned response through my conscious awareness. And the same thing when I'm practicing a passage. Let's say I'm practicing a passage and I can't play it well coordinated with my two hands. If I can really slow the process down and realize that, oh, maybe my left hand is a little too slow here and it needs to speed up so it can be coordinated with my bowing hand. Then when I practice it with more awareness, I'm erasing the habitual miscoordination, sloppy playing with 
more accurate and controlled playing. So there's so many ways that the meditation practice has informed my music practice and vice versa as well. Like I, I used one thing my husband noticed right away after the meditation retreat, because I had a special practice room where I would close the door and I'd go in there and practice it. And he said, whenever you'd practice and I'd be outside, I'd hear a lot of swearing going on. I won't even say the words. Probably they'd have to be bleeped. But <laughs> swearing all the time as I was practicing. He goes, after the meditation retreat, no more swearing. It was like I wasn't being so critical of myself. Mm. I was sort of more critical of the sound, not the self. Mm. And I was able mm. to just say, oh, I was flat. Okay, now I was sharp. It's a discerning but non-judgmental awareness of whatever is present. And now you're teaching students at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music how to do that. I've been teaching some seminars there. I call it Mindfulness Meditation for Musicians. Mm -hmm. And I've taught at also at the Juilliard School where I went, and I'm doing it several other places as well. I've taught some courses at Spirit Rock and at the Esalen Institute. And specifically toward music students, I wish I had had this training when I was a student. It would have helped me so much yeah. to be less critical of myself, yes. more accepting of wherever I was. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful book written by great meditation teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, is wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and I feel like... As yep. a musician, sometimes you get so mad at yourself. You know, I, I did this perfectly yesterday. Why can't I do it now? And really, there has to be an acceptance of, okay, this is where I am today. This is just where I am. And let's start from here. And let's go forward. And how can I work with where I am now, as opposed to where I should be, or where I wish I were, or where I was last week. So that kind of just acceptance and awareness and ability present. to yeah, just be present without all of the extra stuff that we add on to that that right. makes it harder and it clutters up your mind yeah i was just gonna say yeah clutter you quiet your mind so you can fully concentrate and be present on what you're doing rather than thinking about what you should be doing or what you didn't have for breakfast and that you're getting upset with your fingers because they're not working <laughs> don't they call that monkey mind they do they call that monkey mind yeah what would you tell a young musician who was not in the symphony yet, but would like to be? Maybe they walk past this building and look up and think, oh, whoa, one day. Well, I think loving music and having the ability to play music is a wonderful gift to have for yourself, for your children. My both children play music. They have other careers at this point, but they love music and they both play instruments. They both tried the cello at different times, which didn't work too well. So my son actually is a tremendously gifted bluegrass mandolin player. Oh, cool. Yeah. And my daughter plays the trombone and also accordion. She plays a lot of different genres on the accordion. And so they've kind of found music in a way that is meaningful to them and wonderful for them. And I would suggest anybody just pursue music to your heart's desire because it's such a great thing to have as a part of your life. And there are a lot of ways to be a musician in the world. You can work incredibly hard practicing excerpts and taking 50 auditions and win an audition in a great orchestra. Or you can be a music teacher. You can be a music lover. You can play with ensembles. There are a lot of ways to be in music and to have music as an important part of your life. So I encourage everybody to enjoy it and find what you love about music, whatever genre it is, whatever instrument, and just really make it a part of your life. And it's something that you can do for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And maybe 
they might be on a playbill like you <laughs> uh, as a superstar. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much. This was definitely one of my most favorite interviews. I mean, this was just amazing and wonderful. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of set the stage, we entered through the musician's entrance and we walked through the hallways. There's this long hallway with all these photos of all of the people who's ever performed at the symphony. And that was one heck of an experience. But the most captivating thing inside of this interview was how, over time, we've progressed with having more female musicians take prominent positions in the symphony. As soon as they did blind auditions, where you can't see the person playing, all you're judging by is the sound. I thought that was phenomenal, guys. Yeah, I thought Me so too. too. I mean, as a woman, right, Susan? Yes, and also as a person of color, you didn't know what color there was. So you couldn't have bias because it was just a screen. Absolutely. And I also found it so amazing that she has pioneered, I guess maybe she's just publicly giving out her personal way of performing, which is by using mindfulness and mental right. wellness. So she does these teachings about meditation and how you meditate through performing. And it's all about breathing and keeping your mind spatial so that you can not get frustrated when you mess things up, that you can stay focused and breathe through it. And that's very much something that I've been on a path of whatever this year. So <laughs> I was totally like, my ears perked up. I was like, what? Mindful meditation musician, is this what you're doing, Barbara? So I loved hearing about that and I want to know more about what she's doing. I think that really holds true to San Francisco, man. You know, we're all, we're the whole package around here as artists. It's not just playing and performing. It's, it's all about mental health as well. Oh, I just loved that and loved meeting her and getting to see her and meeting her husband. We got to meet her husband at the performance as well. So I'm all about Barbara. Anyway, we're talking to more amazing humans next week, right? Jay, who are we talking to next week? As a matter of fact, it's my favorite time, I was going to say of year, <laughs> but it's just my favorite time in general. And that <laughs> is we are wrapping up with Cheesecake. <laughs> we love doing food. Oh, you just exactly, exactly. Next week we're going to the South Bay where we interview Sheriff Spicer, who owns Namesake Cheesecake. Mm. And this will be our final episode of the season and our holiday special. So we can't wait for you to listen. You can hear that episode and all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. We have a new episode that comes out every Wednesday. Please subscribe so that we can keep bringing you all of these amazing people and wonderful experiences like Barbara and Cheesecake on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> and then go over to our social media. We're at Beyond the Fog Radio. Thank you again for listening. And until next week, take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Beyond the Fog is created by the three of us, Connor Chang, Arliss Hayes, Tim Johnson, and Tim O'Shea. And we also want to give a very special thank you to Carolyn Tyler for being our guest host on this series. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.